Welcome back to the Movable Type podcast, brought to you by University College London. Movable Type is a graduate peer-reviewed journal edited every year by PhD students from the English department at UCL. Please be sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest issue, new episode releases, and more. We are on Twitter at MovableTypeUCL, Instagram at MovableType underscore UCL, and Facebook as MovableType or at MTUCL. And if you want to browse our latest issue while you listen, head on over to ucl.ac.uk slash movable type. This episode of the Movable Type podcast celebrates LGBTQ History Month. And because we have so much to share with you, we are pleased to say that this month's podcast will be a two-parter. Part one will feature two fantastic writers and researchers whose work centers around queer theory and praxis. Dr. Noreen Massoud, lecturer at the University of Bristol, and Talon Wright, a psychiatry PhD researcher at UCL. Part two will include interviews with Ben Miller, co-host of Bad Gay Podcast and Queer Historian, and author Juliet Jacks. We are very excited to share these interviews with you in a spirit of celebration. However, we also recognize the need to respond to the context in which these episodes are being recorded. At the end of 2021, UCL made the decision to leave Stonewall's Diversity Champion Scheme and its Workplace Equality Index. It did so despite the positions, resolutions, and votes of the LGBTQ staff and student community, its EDI committee, both UCU and Unison, and Student Union in favor of a vote by its academic board. Broadly, this decision was based on the idea that Stonewall's support of trans right runs counter to academic freedom and could inhibit discussions about sex and gender. But for many, this decision discredits trans identities and is symptomatic of what Jeffrey Ingold, the head of media at Stonewall, has called a tsunami of transphobia. Stonewall is the largest LGBTQ rights organization in Europe, and for the last 30 years, it has helped create transformative change in the lives of LGBTQ people in the UK. Its Workplace Equality Index is a benchmarking tool for employers to measure their progress on lesbian, gay, bi, and trans inclusion, while the Diversity Champions Program is the leading employer's program for ensuring all LGBTQ staff are free to be themselves in institutional environments. If you want to know more about the ramifications of this decision and what you can do about it, we will make links and information available through our relevant platforms. In addition, we would like to highlight that this podcast is by and for the LGBTQ community at UCL and beyond. We support trans rights and condemn the ongoing harm UCL's withdrawal has caused LGBTQ students and researchers. Trans people should be treated with respect and dignity. This should not be an issue of debate. We also acknowledge that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect the official policies, views, or positions of any institutions with which they are affiliated. Our first guest is Noreen Massoud, BBC New Generation thinker and lecturer at University of Bristol. She specializes in 20th century literature and affect theory. She has previously examined short-form writing and aphorism in the work of Stevie Smith, with her monograph, Hard Language, being released this year. She is currently working on two books, Academic and Trade. Using recent developments in queer and affect theory, her work focuses on how apparently dull and unrevealing flat landscapes articulate difficult or tricky feelings. Welcome, Noreen. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Movable Type podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself uh, for our listeners? Sure. Um, I'm Noreen Massoud. I'm a lecturer at the University of Bristol in 20th century literature. Um, my first book, Hard Language, is hopefully coming out this year or next year. Uh, and I'm working on a new monograph um, called Flat Feeling, about how we might think um, with flat landscapes in the 20th century. That's so exciting. I have so many questions about your work and uh, this idea of flatness in literature. But before that, 
uh, we would like to have a bit of uh, a discussion uh, regarding academic freedom and research spaces, specifically as it pertains the LGBTQ plus community um, in academia in general. So what are your thoughts? How are your feelings uh, in regards to the uh, UCL decision to leave Stonewall? Thank you so much for asking. Yeah, so um, I thought long and hard about coming on this podcast when I was invited uh, because it's, LG- I mean, apart from anything else, it's LGBT History Month. Um, and that sat, it sat very oddly for me to come on a UCL podcast to talk about my research on, on queer theory in part um, in the backdrop, against the backdrop of UCL's decision to cut ties with Stonewall. Um, I condemn the decision absolutely, and I came on this podcast to give me the opportunity to say that. Um, This decision makes UCL an unsafe place, not only for trans students, but um, for queer students, um, for whom the rhetoric in the media, to which this is a response, clearly, it's a political decision, um, is really reminiscent of the sort of the scare that surrounded gay and lesbian people um, earlier in the 20th century. Um, it is a threat to trans people, it's a threat to queer people, um, it makes UCL an unsafe place, for the LGBT community. Yeah, I completely understand what you're saying. And moving forward, uh, what do you think students and staff as individuals uh, can do on their part, both at institutional level, but also as individuals, um, to uh, work towards academic freedom, but also safety for work uh, on queer and LGBTQ studies and support LGBTQ plus um, academics and students as well? Um, Well, at UCL or more generally? Both. (laughs) Sure. Um, What we can do is to uh, signal to trans students in as many ways as we can, that our classrooms are places we that they will be safe. We need to do the research and listen to trans people about what makes them feel safe in these spaces. Uh, and we need to continue to campaign um, in as many ways as we can um, to put in place the things that trans people tell us they need. Um, this It fundamentally comes back to this. We need to listen to trans people and we need to believe what they say. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and how do you see this... Uh specifically as impacting uh, research in academic spaces? I don't think we can do good any sort of good research when a, the university that houses us is, holding, is upholding principles that are so inimical to personal and academic freedom. It affects, the cloud of it hangs over everything we do. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Thank you so much uh, for calling attention to this. So moving on to your own research, uh, which you've mentioned is a lot on um, queer theory and flatness. Um, We would like to ask a few questions on your 2021 monograph on flat feeling and uh, Stevie uh, Stevie Smith. First of all, uh, you write about how um, inhabiting flatness offers the blessing of potential indifference to oneself with the wider human pattern. And uh, before we get more into uh, Stephen Smith specifically, we would really like uh, to uh, ask you, as a term that obeys easy definitions, how would you conceptualize flatness, a word that in an abstract for an essay you wrote, and I found this brilliant, (laughs) you said that it's a word that claims implicitly that no unpacking remains to be done. So how do you move from that that space to like work on flatness and deflight flatness as a space for all this wonderful inquiry and research. Totally. Well, of course, flat, the word flatness makes that claim, but um, and the way that it is deployed believes in, in so much research and writing believes that claim, but we don't need to believe that claim. And uh, my, my definition of flatness, the way I use it, and this is perhaps idiosyncratic, but um, it's any space whether that's a physical or an interpersonal space, um, which draws our attention, in which there is nevertheless nothing to look at, and but uh, which we nevertheless cannot stop looking. So there's nothing to see, but we can't look away. Um, and this hinges on the kind of double meaning of the word flat. The word flat means something sort of empty, in which there's no feature, in which when you have a flat tone of voice, it's something which doesn't have any kind of emphases in the right places. Um, So it's something which is empty. Um, 
supposedly. And but at the same time, when we say something flatly, when we say, for instance, we, we make we make a declaration flatly, what we mean is that there's absolute emphasis. We mean that there is there is no dialogue possible. It, it, yeah, it's a sort of ultimate emphasis. So it flatters simultaneously something very full and very empty. And those meanings absolutely interpenetrate each other. So flatness is something that's so empty that it becomes full, or maybe so full that it becomes empty. Um, and that double meaning, a thing that is both empty and intense, um, offers in my work a kind of model for, for human relationship, I think. And maybe we'll talk about that later in the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. That is uh, so interesting. Um, and why do you think this happened? That like flatness is so often overlooked and considered and or considered affectless. You, yeah. Why? Why is that? Is it the emptiness? Is it? And how did you come to be so interested in it? Um, I think it's fundamentally the reason why we overlook flatness. I, it's very simple. I think I think it comes from a colonial framing. That, that something without content that we can either see or quantify or count, that that something is something that needs to be filled, or maybe it's failed to be filled, or it's lost whatever it had that made it important. Um, yeah, and I see that as a colonial paradigm, and that's why we overlook flatness. In terms of my own interest in, in flatness, it started when I was writing my, my doctorate on Stevie Smith, which um, is going to become... Uh, hard language in either this year or next. Um, I've been grappling mostly in that thesis with Smith's affects. Her poetry is, is very strange. It sort of signals its simplicity and its contingency, its randomness. Um, but equally, it refuses to quite allow these designations. It doesn't know whether it's simple or difficult, whether it's uh, um, trivial or important. Um, and I noticed how often Smith and her characters dwell lovingly in flat landscapes, whether those are real or imagined. She returns over and over again to Lincolnshire, which is, is a very flat space, um, or the Cambridgeshire Fens, also very flat um, in her novels and poetry. And what I reached, the point I reached, was that Smith loved flat landscapes because they offered a space which let her perform or enact or practice a, a preoccupation, which I think underpins all her poetry, how we speak without intimacy. What it means for writing to constitute a kind of withdrawal from relationship. So the flat landscapes and the relationships they enabled became a, a sort of um, stand-in or a space in which Smith's overriding concerns with how we speak to each other could be enacted, particularly as women, particularly as queer people, particularly as people of colour. That's Oh my god, that is not only fascinating, but it's actually quite beautiful <laughs> using like flat uh, spaces and surface as a point of encounter and contact. I think that's so lovely. So in that, uh, to what extent do the writers, um, specifically Stevie Smith, since uh, we're still talking about her poetry, um, that you look at use flatness as a means of resistance to normativity? Um, especially writing outside the nuclear family unit? Um, so I suppose the way I think about it is that flatness is, is less for these writers that I look at a way of resisting normativity. It's more a sort of, um, it, it gives form to a sense of self, other and environment that cannot be accommodated by normativity. It's, it's, a ref, it's, it's not so much an act of resistance maybe as a sort of the necessary space in which one has to dwell. Um, the flat landscapes for uh, these authors, it becomes a way of expressing a self, I think, which falls outside traditional Western assumptions about relationship and intimacy and, and the roles that, that each should play. Um, to Smith herself, um, lives outside traditional family patterns. She, she never married. She was engaged once, but called it off. And she spent her life living with her, her aunt until the aunt died. And Smith died fairly soon after that. Um, so one of the examples I like to use to think about this and to think about these kind of resistance to, to heteronormative Western family structures, it's in Lawrence's difficult and D.H. Lawrence's, sorry, it's in D.H. Lawrence's difficult and, and quite troubling novel, Kangaroo, um, where there are these, these writers from England looking at the flat Australian bush with their sort of Western paradigms firmly in place and, and having sort of struggle about how to look at this landscape. Um, and one of the characters, Harriet, uses these sort of sentimental, but I think really important terms to think about it. Um, 
She says, I can't tell you how it moves me, Australia. I can't tell you how Australia moves me. It feels as if no one had ever loved it. Australia feels as if it had never been loved and never come out into the open, as if man had never loved it and made it a happy country, a bride country or a mother country. And, and you know, if you've, if you've read us, Sarah Ahmed, right, we know it's, it's, it's fairly clear what's going on here. Um, and that coming out is, is coming out into the open, you know, that's Lawrence is predating the first use of the OED gifts of, of coming out. But I think that pun has traction here. The Australian landscape in this Western paradigm is sort of refusing to make its sexual debut. It's not coming out, like, it's not having its coming out ball like a 17-year-old girl. It's not rising into patterns of expected desire. Um, so Sarah Eppen describes how happiness scripts get offered to women. Um, patterns of behaviour or life which are going to bring, supposedly going to bring them happiness. And Australia in this paradigm, is refusing these scripts of sentimental happiness via bridehood or motherhood, which, as a Western woman, as, as a heterosexual Western woman, are coming really easily to hand for her. She's married. Uh, Australia's refusing love. It's refusing the, the patterns of love, um, which are all Harriet can, could get a grip on. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, flatness, in, in its existence, I suppose we could say, yeah, coming round, I can't contradict myself. It can embody a sort of resistance to expected patterns of normativity even as it is also the only shape in which those for these authors in which that those um those selves can exist if that makes sense no it makes total sense and on the topic uh hearing you describe uh or talking about how lawrence authors like lawrence describe australia as this completely unloved uh and cared for uh, landscape makes me think of um, your appearance on the High Theory podcast, where you spoke about the flat space as a site of indigenous erasure, it seems to me that uh, there is this connection being made of like, because it seems barren through this Western la uh, lens that you mentioned. Um, it it like they are projecting that view onto this landscape just because it's different from what they perceive of as something cultivated and loved. So yeah, can you uh, tell us a bit more about um, how that operates and, and how you see the potential for decolonizing this view of flat spaces? Absolutely. So in, in Western writing at this time, there was sort of um, the major way really in which flat spaces tend to be treated is a sort of empty spaces and that's either in the American prairie or the Australian bush um, and of course these spaces are not empty in any way at this time it's just it's absolutely it's it's and certainly not empty of human life they're the homes of indigenous people they're being used in in exactly. the traditional ways of indigenous people but persistently you know one of the major ways in which colonization got a grip in in the US certainly is um, through casting um, Native American spaces and native, whether that's reserves or spaces that hadn't yet been sort of um, sort of absorbed into that system as as waste, as empty. They're not being used, and therefore we can take them. You know, like if they're not being used in the right way, they're just being wait the right way in inverted commas that we can just take them. Um, the rhetoric is consistently about these spaces as empty, or either or they're already empty when they're encountered. They're great sort of inviting unused spaces. Or, or they've been made empty after Western intervention. There's a lot about looking out at sort of the cultivated prairie and thinking, ah, once the Indian roamed wild here. This is Catherine pa Willa Catherine paraphrasing here. Um, and, now, and now he's vanished and instead we've built civilization here. Um, so it's a fantasy that revolves both around sort of indigenous invisibility and indigenous disappearance. Now, Kangaroo by D.H. Lawrence is a really interesting example. And it's, it's sort of, it feels like the kind of novel where what's happening is sort of more than can quite be accommodated by the author himself you know what's happening is, is ex the anxiety spilling over exceeding the capacity of the author to um to coral them or accurately represent them um there's so much so many instances with the main character summers is sort of sitting and looking out at the landscape and being like i just can't get a grip on it um you know what what what's its secret what's its what's it hiding you know what's it keeping from me which are all sort of things which come out of a western way of looking at the landscape um and he sent he talks about the, the hollow distances of this landscape uh, and he says he can sense something in it but he can't see it there at no point in this novel is there a mention of aboriginal australians 
They're completely absent from the narratives. But what we have, we have the word Aboriginal, but it's used to describe cliffs. It's tree trunks, rocks, the dusk. They're described as Aboriginal. Uh, and the closest brush we get with an Indigenous person comes through a description of the landscape um, as a face with little or no features, a dark face, Aboriginal. So the featurelessness of this landscape, on which Summers can get no grip, becomes identical with this open secret of continued Aboriginal presence and survival in a land that's supposedly empty. And neither Summers nor Lawrence can see it or succeed in not seeing it. That's what I think is going on. There's a very, that happens mostly at the beginning of the novel. And then at the end of the novel, there's, there's a sort of series of, there are sort of various political and um, sort of upheavals and personal struggles going on at the same time, which it would take too long to sort of go into. But what happens is basically a catastrophe. And then at the end, we've got Summers coming to a kind of terms with Australia or finding a way in which maybe that Western paradigm is, is laid to rest. And it's key that it's temporary. I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, Australia is cutting itself off, they think, from sort of love and lovability in Western terms. It's refusing, as, as I said a little bit before, to sort of enter the economy of love, um, which is digestible to a Western audience, in which, in which is a kind of give and take, where it can respond, respond in legible ways and be responded to um, in that kind of what, what some critics, what Kirsty Martin, I think, calls a sort of a rhythm of sympathy, um, which is weirdly absent from this Lawrence novel. And this can seem like a sort of act of, of psychic hostility, but what I'm interested in, in the way that this is a sort of spacious accommodation of the other, um, I think a lot in <laughs> the things around me when I write sort of creep inevitably into my, into my thinking. And, when I, and the thing that always comes into my head when I talk about this is my cat. Uh, and when cats sit with their back to you, but near you, um, what they're doing is it's a really good exemplification of this kind of relationship where you are in relation but not in exchange you're in relationship but not in intimacy and i find that fascinating uh, so yeah that relationship come there's there's a really interesting sequence at the end of the novels love novel and last several pages where um summers sort of seeks relief in this indifferent australian landscape and it's specifically encoded in terms of flatness You've got sort of um, the black snails on the flat rocks or the flat rocks near the coal jetty and the flat rocks. You can back and back to them, these flat things that don't give. It sort of accommodates that observer without being interested in a relationship based around mutual exchange and without being interested in giving itself over to the Western terms of intimacy, which Summers demands from it. Um, and the basis of this new pleasure that Summers derives from the landscape, and it, it, it derives from this refusal to participate in legible, passionate love. So, yeah, uh, what's interesting then is then the Summers, is, they leave Australia. And I think that's really interesting. <laughs> what, what that does is it's a thinly veiled autobiographical novel. Lawrence also left Australia at this point. But there's something there, isn't it, about um, finding a new mode of relationship that then you don't know what to do with. And then you just leave. You know, yeah. um, so it's it's a very yeah, but, interesting novel that's kind sort of working against itself and its mechanisms and is revealing more than maybe it quite knows. I think. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, please. Um, all everything that you've been saying is so fascinating. Uh, so thank you very much. Um, you mentioned this wonderful example with your cat and the moment of intimacy and intimacy, but no exchange. I think that also. Um, connects very well with the current moment that we're living. We are living, and this is the well-known aphorism, right, of recent years, is that we're going through unprecedented times, and it feels like this idea of different networks of intimacy and exchange or not exchange and leaving or in, impossibility of leaving emptiness, all of that speaks directly um, to what we're going through, uh, you know, as a global society and also... Um, possibly as individuals. Uh, so what do you think flatness has to say uh, about these times? And how can you sort of uh, see the value of using flatness as a lens of analyzing our current moment? Thank you. Um, so there's two parts to this question, to, to my thoughts about this, I think. And one part I went into great detail on, on the re um, recent High Theory podcast, uh, about how flatness can um, be part of our political economic solidarity. So I'm not going to go into detail on that here. What I want to say here, I think is, is weirdly simple and obvious, but very, for me, very important. Um, and it's 
you know, I, I'm speaking here to UCL management, I think. And it relates again to what we talked about at the beginning in terms of UCL cutting ties with Stonewall. I think flatness helps us sit with things and people whom we might not be able to immediately accommodate within our existing interpretative frameworks and cultural assumptions. If yours says you will never know what it feels like to be trans, you will never know what it feels like to not sit right in, in the gender you were assigned at birth. So flatness involves, at its best, at its most redemptive, flatness involves taking people at their word very simply about their experiences. I can't understand, but I believe you. And I believe you when you tell me what you need. Um, and I think flatness, if we continue along this line of thinking, in my view, issues a strong moral demand that we protect and support the trans community. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for that insight. Uh, it's uh, really beautiful. Uh, could you also expand how um, would you like to take flatness forward uh, in literary studies as well? Yeah. Um, so I think I'm, it's really important to say here that, that my work on flatness is part of this huge um the huge, huge sort of movement in literary study going on, particularly in affect theory. I think, I think Yao calls it, Zain Yao calls it the, the turn towards negativity, I think, in, in affect studies. And Yao is this groundbreaking part of that. Uh, so are people like Ray Tarada, Lauren Berlant, Mary Ruti. Um, what I think flatness in, in my conceptualization adds to that, that huge swell of and a huge shift in affect theory um, is maybe a question, a way of, of um, addressing the question of intimacy. And I think the hidden question in a lot of recent work um, in terms of negative affect is how could we do intimacy better? Um, and I'm actually interested in moving away from intimacy. I'm interested in relationship without intimacy, which feels like a, uh, a contradiction, but I, I actually don't think is. I'm interested in areas in which intimacy is for whatever reason not felt to be possible or desirable. There are certain people whose worlds have made it impossible for them to be in intimacy. And how do those people live good lives? How do they write? How, what form does relationship take for them? Um, so I'm interested in areas where individuals might feel safest, might make a way of surviving or writing or relating without intimacy. And all of the authors I, I study, from Smith to um, the new monograph, are, are part of that. And I take that really seriously and I ask, what might it mean to have a relationship without intimacy? What is enabled by that? What new ways of solidarity, if we take it one step further, might that make possible? That's so amazing. Um, and in framing uh, your studies in flatness within this uh, new movement in affect, very uh, potent, of course, uh, and as a BBC New Generation thinker yourself, how do you see this carrying beyond literary studies? How do you feel about bringing it to a broader audience? What would you like to say about that? I love bringing my research to a broader audience and the, the what I, well, my, my research has so many different parts, so ways in which we can think about it simply in terms of a flat landscape and what, what it makes us feel and what, what that enables when we have that encounter. Um, but it also, I did a recent documentary for the BBC on on puppets and the gaze, and I think of the puppet's relationship as a, as a, as a the puppet is enabling a mode of flat relationship. I don't use that word in the documentary, but that's the sort of the next step of my thinking. It kind of intermediary between the performer and the audience, uh, which enables a kind of um, mediation or kind of block of intimacy, which which nevertheless makes something something happen. Um, yeah, so it's 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 great fun, um, and I hope useful for people. Um, and it takes, yeah, it takes lots of different forms. Sorry, that's not a very interesting answer. <laughs> no, please. It's fascinating. I was looking at your work on puppets and I am also very interested in them. So it was uh, lovely to see. Um, and before we uh, finish the interview, I would also like to segue on other aspects of your uh, research interests because you are very interested in aphorisms and nonsense. And could you just mention a little bit what is so fascinating uh, about that for you personally and how do you see as it relates to 
intimacy or like other aspects, areas of your work? Absolutely. So um, all of these areas of, of work, the aphorism, the nonsense, the flatness and the puppets are intimately interlinked. Uh, and <laughs> fundamentally, what the, the, the argument I make about aphorism in my, in my forthcoming monograph is that aphorism provides a way of allowing the marginalised to speak without risk of an answer. To engage in dialogue as a marginalised person can, can be not just dangerous, it can not just sort of subject you. We, we, we come from the point of view often that dialogue will fix everything. There's still this belief that we can enter, if we can enter into a meaningful dialogue, everything will be fixed. And I think the kind of political um, and technological um, changes of the last sort of 10 plus years, it's difficult to say exactly when it happens, have, have, have shown that to be fallacious, that something else needs to happen before exchange can be meaningfully conducted. So aphorism provides a way in which one can have the relief of expressing oneself, but the sealed off complete finality of the aphorism says, don't talk back to me, don't enter into dialogue, that's not going to get me anywhere. As a marginalised person, you're not just at risk of sort of... Um, you know, often very direct threat to your life if, if someone engages with what you've said. But um, also the terms on which dialogue is felt to be meaningful or valid are those set by the powerful. And within that context, meaningful dialogue between the marginalised and the powerful cannot take place. So that's, that's, the, that's where aphorism fits in to my thinking about that withdrawal from intimacy or familiar forms of communication. Now, the nonsense I think about, I suppose, I've always got Camus in, in my head, that the absurd happens when man sort of calls out to the universe for meaning and the universe doesn't reply, you know? <laughs> so, it's, again, it's that what happens in that, that space where intimacy fails or is impossible. And how do we cope with it? And nonsense is one of the ways we do that. Nonsense, again, is one of the ways we speak with that while knowing that a meaningful response is impossible. To respond to nonsense is, 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 it's like not getting a joke. You can't do it. So it's a space, again, in which you can speak without the, without the threat of a reply, I think. Fascinating. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, it's been a pleasure and honor, and I definitely will be thinking about, as, as I'm sure um, all our audience will be, uh, your very interesting points. Thank you very so much. Thank you so much. In closing, I just want to call out again to UCL to rethink its decision to cut ties with Stonewall and solidarity with all LGBTQ plus students at UCL today. Thank you so much. Up next is an interview with Talent Wright, psychiatry PhD student researching trans mental health at UCL. She has previously held posts which investigate experiences of marginalized individuals, such as skin infections amongst people who inject drugs, LGBT mental health, and TGD experiences with HIV services and transition-related healthcare access. She is co-investigator on the longitudinal outcomes of gender identity in children's study at the Tavistock and Portland NHS Foundation Trust. Her PhD research examines the impact of social determinants on the well-being of trans people. Hello, Talon. So nice to meet you. Welcome to the podcast. Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, sure. So my name is Talon. Um, I am a trans woman and PhD student here at UCL, uh, specifically the Division of Psychiatry. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and yeah... I do a lot of research into trans mental health and trans health more broadly as well, such as HIV, uh, self-testing, and um, yeah, young adolescent LGBT mental health as well. Amazing. Uh, could you give us a bit of uh, detail on your project? Yeah, sure. So um, my, my kind of PhD is in epidemiology and mental health sciences. So I'm doing a, a quantitative um, exploration of microaggressions and their impacts on, or their, their associations with, I should say, um, speaking epi ways, uh, on depression, anxiety and suicidality. So as part of that, I also have a bunch of other things such as gender minority stresses and loneliness and rumination as potential key risk factors with the kind of mental health burden in the trans community. So I can talk a bit more about that as well, but in terms of the project, um, 
I'm doing a big cross-sectional study to begin with. So it's a big kind of survey of trans people and non-binary people in the UK if they're aged 18 or older. It's been kind of the recruitment's been going on uh, via social media mostly, through Twitter. And yeah, we've had a really great response so far. I mean, I've managed to recruit 811 trans and non-binary people. Um, that's, that's in terms of who's accessed the survey, but in completion, it's a little bit less. But it's still a great number. It's, it's a good turnout, um, especially since like the last biggest survey on trans mental health was back in 2012 in the UK. So it's been about 10 years when they recruited about 900 to 1,000. So I'm hoping to either get there or beat it. Um, it's the plan. Um, yeah, so that's kind of, and then the second part of the study is an ecological momentary assessment study. And that's just a very fancy way of saying a kind of daily diary type survey design. So I will be using the same survey every day over three weeks and participants will respond to that survey every day for three weeks. And the great thing about that particular methodology is it allows me to track daily fluctuations in mental health as a consequence of experiencing microaggressions or microaffirmations. Should I explain what a microaggression is? Would that be helpful, do you think? I think that would be super helpful for our listeners, yes. Because the, the, the kind of issue around microaggressions I think is really interesting. Um, a lot of people, and myself included, would agree that what a microaggression is isn't necessarily micro um, or necessarily an aggression. Mm. They seem to be more like kind of daily violences um, or like at least they are felt as violences. So when someone is doing, so in, in the kind of broadest sense, a, a microaggression is a kind of, it's a daily verbal or uh, behavioral commonplace slight or indignity um, that communicates hostility towards a marginalized or minoritized person. So it has its kind of origins within uh, black and a black Asian minority ethnic um, communities with uh, racial microaggressions which is kind of like an example of that would be someone saying like to a, so to a black woman, like, oh, I love your hair, let me touch your hair, and then touching the hair. That's, it's that sort of thing where, because a part of a microaggression is intentional or unintentional, I should have said. So it could have been, you know, maybe there's no intention to cause offence or to cause harm, but harm is being caused regardless. And the kind of theory is, is that a kind of single event microaggression could have a detrimental impact on someone's well-being, but I also think, and I think a lot of other scholars think that, or know-ish, maybe not in the trans community so much, but that kind of the frequency in which someone experiences microaggressions. If you're experiencing like five or six microaggressions every single day, that's going to have this kind of cumulative impact on your mental health over time and lead to these sorts of big burdens of, you know, suicidal ideation or, in other words, suicide thoughts, suicidal thoughts and maybe even attempts in self-harm. So that's what microaggressions are. And then in the flip side of that, a microaffirmation is, is kind of like those little things that people do that displays kind of openness or acceptance of, say, your gender identity or your cultural background that allows you to feel like you are welcomed in, in a kind of social situation where you may be a minority or marginalized person. Um, and those, I think, are equally as important for kind of building back up people's well-being and, and mental health. That's great. That's fascinating. Uh, I definitely want to return to the point of um, affirmation versus aggression and environments. But before, I'm just very curious about a research aspect that you mentioned, which is um, access and uh, who is partaking in the survey, um, because clearly these data um, is the previous data is from 2012. So in dire need of an update. Um, but I'm curious about uh, age and access, because you've had such a great turnout, uh, 800 people plus is amazing. However, um, how would you ensure or like try to uh, reach perhaps older uh, trans and non-binary people? And as you said, like how you c characterize microaggressions, how would you make sure uh, to people maybe things that they didn't consider as microaggression? How would you engage in this discourse um, to make it like as cross-sectional as possible? That is a great question, because that's something I've grappled with a lot. Um, when it comes to, yeah, sort of uh, kind of, I suppose, internet um, legibility or kind of understanding of how to use the internet, the older generations tend not to kind of quite understand technology in the same way as younger generations do. 
Um, at the moment, it seems to me that we're doing okay. We've got quite a few people in the kind of upper age groups. But then, of course, there is bias there potentially because these are people who do have literacy in, in, in terms of the internet. Um, and for those who don't, maybe they are experiencing more loneliness and less community connectedness. Um, I think that's just one of the problems with research is like how do you diversify your recruitment strategy is to really access the population you're trying to access. And one of the other big issues with, with trans health research um, in the UK specifically and potentially more worldwide is the lack of representative data on trans people. So, you know, we can't say for any, in any certainty what the trans community looks like in the UK in terms of maybe, you know, ethnic distribution or, you know, disability um, and... Uh, religious uh, identity and so on and sexual orientation so it's it's very tricky to to kind of try and figure out who we who we're accessing and is it the right population to access uh, so the big kind of push we're doing or at least I'm trying to do is just to diversify so instead of thinking about things as representative try and think of like get a good number of people in different categories or different demographics that we can actually make some decent report some decent findings on that could be beneficial to the community and in, 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 in mental health services. Um, what was the other part of your question, though? You said something else that was important that I've forgotten. Oh, I have forgotten as well. <laughs> Typical. <laughs> Sorry. No, but yeah, I, I just mentioned uh, how it's important to update uh, this data and how would you make sure... Um, Oh, now I remember microaggressions. Uh, uh, yeah. And how you explain um, how, I don't know, because of, again, some of these ideas and what constitute as a microaggression can be, um, as you mentioned, tricky and complex. So how would you communicate without necessarily revictimizing or sort of reshifting? It, it seems like it's potentially a very delicate area, um, depending on like the age and conception of the people involved. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that when it came to trying to figure out how to ask about microaggressions in a way that, as you said, isn't re-traumatizing um, or triggering to the fact that, you know, someone may have experienced it quite recently even and be like, you know, I just forgot about that and I remembered, like, thanks a lot, like researcher at UCL how dare you um because I, I would feel the same way but the the kind of method I've used instead is to give some examples but say that these aren't like exhaustive so um trying to think of the top of my head for like a transgender microaggression or a gender identity based microaggression would be saying that like you know you're not really like in my case as a trans woman I might say you're not really a woman though are you like you're not really a woman and that would kind of you know be a subtle it wouldn't be that, that subtle, to be honest, but it would be something that is not so kind of impactful in the way that it might make me go away and think, well, am I? Am I? Yes, I am a woman. Am I? I don't know. Like, you know, it makes you kind of do a double take. It makes you think or someone giving you a funny look is technically a microaggression because it makes you kind of internalize that and think, is it something about me? Am I am I am I not passing? You know, and we can talk about passing and, and how problematic that is. But um but you do kind of think, like, am I being seen as a trans person? Am I safe in this environment? Um, and most of the time we don't feel that safe. But so, like, in terms of trying to get across what a microaggression is, I've just given, like, the very standard definition and said, you know, anything can be misconstrued as a micro, or anything can be seen as a microaggression, whether or not you experience that way or, or you don't. And if you do experience microaggression, and you think this is a microaggression, and it is, therefore you have. Um, otherwise, you know, I could end up with just a, a kind of a thousand-page book on different microaggressions on each line and say, any of these? <laughs> um, and that would just not be very useful, I think, for people. But a few examples um, that I, I try to choose are kind of low-level, like, you know, more annoyances than and kind of something that would make you feel re-traumatized. I can't speak for everyone. Of course. Um, just as a last bit of the minutiae of the research. Um, so will you get feedback at the end or have you already had some feedback on the survey or um, some of the implications? Because this is, of course, framed uh, within your PhD project. So it's a big project. But have you been able to sort of interact more directly with the people surveyed? Um, What's that been like? Yeah, it's been it's been interesting. Um, there's been a few people who have given feedback, um, 
And it's, so far it's been positive, although I do understand that, like, the questions I'm asking uh, people to fill out are incredibly um, depressing, I mean, because it's about depression and anxiety and suicide, so it just makes people, it can be quite difficult to go through, hence why we give a, a kind of, like, quite an exhaustive list of support directed at trans people who are going through a mental health crisis. But then, you know, people feel, I feel like people want to do the study because they feel like it's going to make a difference and I hope it does make a difference in its own way, its small way or large way or whatever way it makes, you know, that impact. Um, it's been a few times where there's some people, because again, the trans community is very diverse, we've got very different political leanings, very different ideas around gender, um, who just absolutely cannot stand the survey already because I ask a question on gender identity and how, you know, you identify with gender. Um, to try and make things as kind of inclusive as possible. But of course, that inclusivity means that people can be quite aggressively against it, um, which is easy to deal with, um, especially, you know, in, in terms of the data set. So if people are trying to mess up my survey, they'll have a difficult time doing so because I can kind of identify those people quite easily. Um, but yeah, so people have been generally quite positive, um, kind of warning people that they should do it, but also, you know, take the time. and. This is why we also implemented a kind of save option. So you can save and return to the survey at a later point if things are too difficult. Because, you know, it's a 20 to a twenty to 30 minute survey, depending on how quick people are. Um, and that can be, in, you know, talking about your depression, suicide, self-harm, for, for even like five minutes can be a bit much. So people are returning and saving, which is great to see. That's that's great. That's fascinating to, to know and... Um like reflect upon um, how to conduct research ethically, um, but especially research that impacts other people. And on the topic of just research and research environments, and you talked about affirmation versus aggression. So um, what is it like working within um, the UCL framework, uh, specifically as it's a university that deals a lot with uh, public um surveys or like public studies, studies that have quite a, a very real impact in policymaking, um, but also uh, in light of the recent uh, Stonewall UCL development that we've been discussing throughout the episode. Yeah. So uh, being a trans a person there, I know. <laughs> at UCL is, um, it's, it's, I've always felt safe here until relatively recently with the Stonewall, with UCL's decision not to rejo uh, rejoin the Diversity uh, Champions and the Workplace Equality Index. Um, you know, I did my master's here back in 2016 and I had a great experience. You know, the Division of Psychiatry where I work is is very, very welcoming and, and very lovely. I've always had like no issues here whatsoever. Um, and generally around UCL's campus, I've always felt completely fine and safe. But more recently with the, uh, with the Stonewall decision, it's it's felt challenging. It's kind of one of those situations again where, you know, I, I a lot of minoritized and marginalized people will, will experience this sort of hypervigilance around others where, you know, you, you kind of look, you try to see the good in people, but actually all you can really see is something bad's going to happen. There's expectation, that negative expectation of bad things coming your way. Um, especially when something's so widely publicized, like the Stonewall uh, decision that UCL made. Um, well, actually, to be honest, but like, it's different. I mean, the interesting part about that is because it was the academic board that decided to not rejoin. And actually, there's been overwhelming support from all of the like unions and the, the study group, uh, the student clubs and groups uh, dedicated to LGBT equality and diversity that have really pushed to kind of return to, to Stonewall and, and to include them in... Um, or to, to, inclu to include them, to, to allow for better representation on, and help, I suppose, for LGBT students and staff. So it's been difficult. It's hard to really kind of, like, figure out how I feel most of the time because it's just one of those things where, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing the work of trans mental health research and then I stop working and I look outside and it's like, oh, the world's still on fire with transphobia. It's like, okay, great, I can't <laughs> escape it. Um, but yeah, so it's it's been tricky. 
Have you um, find uh, it has had any impact on your research or like, do you foresee it having any uh, impact on your research, um, whether, you know, internally or pragmatically? It actually, I think it has slightly. I've noticed since Stonewall's decision, when I reshared my uh, study advert, which is branded with UCL, um, because UCL had a very good representation, uh, representation, a reputation amongst, um, I think, the LGBT community widely. And since I, when I reshared it, people were kind of saying, like, wait, why this? Why is this person associating so heavily with UCL? Like, have they not read the decision? Have they not known, do they not know the news? Like, what's going on here? This feels like a bit of a smack in the face, you know, to ask trans people to fill out a survey at UCL and, and so kind of proudly label UCL on it. And, and that was quite difficult because it, it just made me kind of, it just, I was like, well, you know, yes, I'm a, a student here at UCL, but I do not agree at all with their decision to leave Stonewall. Um, in fact, it's it's having a, a, a more direct impact, I think, on, on my well-being as well as my study success. Um, and I think it's going to be hard for UCL specifically to gain that trust back, especially from the, the trans community. Um, yeah, so it's had that sort of impact. It's had, it's had a personal impact in terms of my mental health and well-being. I just kind of feel a bit lost with it all and a bit kind of depressed about it. And then also seeing people kind of almost attack my survey and, uh, because of what UCL decided. It's like, thanks, UCL. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Great <laughs> yeah. job, sweetie. <laughs> I'm, oh, my God. Yeah, it must be very, very hard to... Um, have that at odds with your research which is something I'm sure you've been putting so much effort and thought and not just you possibly a team um, just in designing the survey anything so hopefully we can contribute a little bit also to people um, joining to the study and we'll give more information at the end uh, but uh, with the spirit of moving forward and like hoping for the best on all accounts where do you see your um, study going regardless of outcome do you want to um, I don't know of course you want to publish it but yeah what um, effects or like what's the next step after the survey is completed regarding the research so I think what I've always wanted to do is yeah publications are a wonderful thing right you know it's it's academic currency it's if you want a career in academia <laughs> you have to publish you know that publish or perish you know BS that likes to be thrown around um, but I, I'd like to see this project as kind of a starting point in a long line of research that focuses on specific uh, risk factors uh, for depression, anxiety and suicide in the trans community and how we can best implement prevention and improve intervention. So one of the things that is quite lacking um, is research around microaggressions being one of them, but also loneliness in the older trans community. We know that loneliness um, causes depression, um, especially in the older population. And it's, it's assumed that that would be the same for trans people and non-binary people who are, you know, 50 years or older. Um, however, I, I can't find much empirical evidence of that. So it's, it's hard to convince uh, like uh, charities and um, and kind of services that this is a real issue that needs to be addressed. Um, something that I, I mean the listeners might not know about is that you know the trans mental health burden in this country at least and many other countries is is just ridiculous. It's you know eighty four percent of trans people have thought about ending their life at some point, and then you look at kind of people with diagnosed depression and anxiety and that's about 50% and then 30% respectively um, and the numbers are still high you know with probable depression and probable anxiety you're looking again at like 60% roughly for both um, I might be fudging numbers there slightly but it's 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 a, essentially the the takeaway from that is that it's disproportionately higher than the general population which is much lower for a common mental health disorder it's you know about 20% um, or even less than that sometimes. So, you know, we, but we're seeing this time and time again. So when I looked at the 2012 study, they had 84% suicidal ideation. I look at my data on the ones I have got, and I, you know, shouldn't really be doing that, but sometimes I just get a bit too curious where I look, and I'm getting <laughs> about 80% as well in suicidal ideation. Um, 
and it's and and then I'm looking at past year kind of feelings of uh, suicidality, and in in that case, it's still just as high. Um, so my kind of question usually is like, well, where, what is what is going on? Like, why is this number not coming down? Um, yeah. And then you look at then you start kind of getting down the rabbit hole, and you look at like you know how services are. Um, are just not built for trans people in the slightest, or you know they 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 actively um, contribute to that mental health burden through microaggressions and sometimes just macro violences, and then well especially macro violences when you think about um, kind of like the government and and you know trans equality and trans equality law like you know we're seeing the Gender Recognition Act still being debated, we're seeing trans lives still debated, um, newspapers just running columns upon columns of tra- about trans people with not a single trans columnist there to to kind of give their perspective. Um, and I've even spoken to some friends and that, you know, they say like, you know, what's really like upsetting. And then, you know, this is like cis friends of mine who say that their families have like after dinner debates about trans lives. It's like as if, as if it's a kind of entertaining thing to do. And not realizing these are like real lives that are being affected. Yeah, you're completely right in that. And um, in addition to that, or before um, we finish uh, this lovely segment, uh, could you tell us like, regarding sort of the opposite, right? How, um, how do you see care and the role of care um, for uh, trans people um, in regards to your study, but also more generally and what can... Can you see the mental health community, but also individuals, or how can we move forward and help? There, there are loads of things that people can do that just that displays kind of acceptance um, of trans people, acceptance of just you know gender nonconformity or gender diversity more broadly. Uh, just before that, though, there was a point I wanted to make about the prevention. Yeah, no worries. It's just that I was thinking, like, you know, all these kind of, like, big issues that we're currently experiencing when it comes to, you know, politics and the politicization of transness, I suppose. It's it's how do, how do the services or how do prevention techniques take that into consideration and actively help to diminish the effect that is having on people's lives? Because that's the one thing that it seems to be really lacking. But that's where it kind of fits in now with what people can do and... and I think people have been doing this for a while and it's great to see, but, you know, sometimes just having your pronouns, you know, written on your email signature or in your social media bios um, is one step, but, you know, it's probably not a step. It's probably a very, very small step. There can be a lot more done. Um, it's about challenging and being and being a good bystander. So when, you, when you're witnessing uh, transphobic incidents, incidences, you're... you're standing up for that person if they need you to be there to stand up for them or at least checking in with them. Um, it's, yeah, boycotting essentially any uh, national you know, news outlet that, that just consistently writes negatively about trans people as well. It's, it's educating oneself, I think. It's just taking the ownership of um, what are the experiences for trans people and kind of making sure that you don't behave in that same way that they're, they're, they're telling you that it's the experiences. Um, but in terms of the mental health community, I think what this all kind of leads to is this very kind of affirmative approach um, around gender identity. And I think a lot of times people misinterpret what affirmation is because they see it as being almost the opposite of conversion therapy, where conversion therapy is actively trying to you know, stop you from being trans or from being LGBT generally. Um, what affirmative therapy does or affirmation is meant to do is to meet you where you are on your journey and then support you with that. So, you know, if there are moments where you kind of decide maybe transition isn't for you, you'll, get, you'll be supported through that process as well as if it is for you. Um, and I think that's what people need to do is just kind of like be with trans people where they're at in, the, in their journey and, and, their, and, and accept them for who they are and, you know, realise that gender is a spectrum and it is, it's very fluid. Things can, things can change, that's okay. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Just a reminder for our listeners um, that you are still 
uh, calling uh, to trans and non-binary people aged 18 or older to partake in your research. Um, we are going to share the Twitter link. Is that all right? Or do you have any other way of contacting you? So there is a, there's a, um, a Twitter study site and there's also it's also on the UCL's website. So I can send through any information um, as a link to the study page. Amazing. We'll include that in our transcript and in the description. Uh, I'm sure uh, we'll make it available so people can partake. And once again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And as we've reached the end of part one, we want to thank our lovely guests, team, and of course, listeners for their support. Remember to check out part two for the rest of our LGBT Plus History Month special. Tune in next month for another movable type podcast episode.